Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another episode of Living La Vida de Luxury. Today, I am honored to be joined by a true trailblazer in the field of mental health and workplace culture. Our guest, Dr. Nabil, is not only a seasoned global speaker, but also a dedicated psychologist specializing in providing support to executives and leaders. What sets him apart is not just his professional expertise, but also his rich and diverse background. In this episode, we'll delve into Dr. Nabil's unique journey, exploring the influences of his multicultural identity on his approach to mental health advocacy, from breaking down stigmas to navigating the intricacies of workplace cultures around the world, Dr. Nabil has a wealth of experience to share. So join us as we uncover the insights he's gained from working at the intersection of psychology, culture, and leadership. Welcome, Dr. Nabil. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here. Me too. Me too. I'm very excited. And I think today is going to be another great conversation. And um, it's actually my first when it comes to mental health and awareness on my podcast. So um, I love the fact that you're a doctor and this is what you specialize in and you can help us all out with that. So before we go into our conversation, tell us about yourself, your background, your story. Sure. Well, my name is Nabil el Garuri, and I have my PhD and my CAE and I'm a licensed psychologist. So I can see patients in 39 states uh, for telehealth. I, um, my background, so with my name, you might think that I am Arabic, and I am. I am half Egyptian. I am also Nicaraguan and Chinese. And so my joke about my acculturation level is that I speak Spanish fluently. I can count to 20 and cuss in Arabic, and I can make a great wonton noodle soup from scratch. <laughs> so, um, so that's how I describe my, my, my acculturation. Uh, and then how I got into, um, mental health is I have a brother with autism. And so I really wanted to learn more about autism. And so I became a, I got my PhD really in child psychology, but then when I transitioned to working in associations, so I, I was a volunteer at the American Psychological Association for years. And then I ended up taking a job leading the graduate student group at APA uh, that got me into organizations and working with leaders. I went from there to becoming a CEO of an association. And then after when I left that organization, I decided to blend my two worlds and start doing therapy with executives and leaders. And I define a leader as anyone. And frankly, it's anyone who can afford my rate. Yeah. <laughs> now... Being that you have just a mixture of cultures and heritages, right? Like how did your cultures help you to identify the journey in the mental health and workplace culture space? I'm sure that has something to do. Play a well, part. I, you know, so it's interesting. I've, I've always, I didn't know the word intersectionality when I started. Like intersectionality mm -hmm. really popped up in the field after I got my PhD. And, but I had been feeling that for, for a long time that I would go to a group and that was, you know, for Latinos and I would, I would uh, feel a lot of affiliation for them, but then a part of me is different. And, 
you know, same thing, like I'm also gay. So going to gay groups, I might feel very ethnic in that group. In the Latino group, I might feel very gay. In the Asian group, I feel very Latin and Arab. So like I, I constantly had a, a bit of a struggle. But then the other part, when I it really changed when I thought of myself as a bridge between cultures. And if you think about a bridge, a bridge has a leg in different lands and it unites the two. And one of the things that I do in all aspects of my work is I look for common ground. And so common ground is that bridge that builds connections. And so I have really seen myself as someone who links different groups, who um, who connects people and, and finds the, the unique common ground. I, and you'd be surprised. I can walk, my partner jokes that it's not six degrees of Kevin Bacon, it's three degrees of Dr. Nabil. You know, I, I, I will find the connection between yeah. us. Yeah. So it's interesting because, you know, you, you said you got your PhD in child psychology, but you're working with leaders, executives and the workplace. So like, how did you make that shift? How did you get into that? It started with me, be, me joining the American Psychological Association. So I joined and I started directing uh, the grad student office. So I was a senior director at the American Psychological Association. And I was leading a bunch of programs, mentoring a lot of students. After several years in that program, or working there, I ended up uh, applying for and getting into the diversity executive leadership program at the American Society of Association Executives. So ASAE, is the association for people who work in associations. Very meta, right? There's an association for everyone. Right. Everything. And so when I got into that group, I started seeing myself less as a psychologist who worked at the American Psychological Association and more as a, a professional in the association industry where I worked in organizations. And that's where I got the inspiration to become a CEO and then I was able to become a CEO of a $6 million association that had 35,000 members when I left. And so those two experiences got me very comfortable talking with leaders, talking with executives. You know, I had I ran a budget. I, I knew the budget really well, even though I'm not a finance person. Like, you could not pay me enough money to be a CFO. Like, no, nope, I don't want to do that. But I know how to read it. I know how to talk it. I know how to explain it to people. And so that that taught me, um, it gave me a different skill set that I can talk business and I can talk mental health. And there's a there's a stereotype in mental health that that it's loosey-goosey, hippie-ish, you know. Um, the the joke is kind of therapists wear a lot of Birkenstocks, long flowy skirts, long hair. Um and I am very different from that. I talk like a business person and I can do therapy with folks who are in business and I'm still doing evidence-based work, but it's couched in language that people can understand. Mm -hmm. Now, you're also a speaker where you talk about mental health and the workplace culture. Can you take us through the key moments or any experiences that led you to choose this path? 
was there a specific event or realization that inspired you to focus on these areas? You know, it's evolved over time, I would say. Um, I, I've had the, the privilege of speaking at a lot of conferences um, as a psychologist, working at APA. I got invited to a lot of events. And one of the best things was um, getting invited because I speak Spanish. I got invited to a lot of Latin American events where I would do presentations in Spanish. So I got to visit, uh, let's see, my first presentation was in Ecuador. Then I went to Bolivia, Colombia, uh, El Salvador, Cuba. I got to go to Cuba to speak. Wow. And so so that was that was the beginning. I started seeing I started talking at conferences. And then really as a uh, as a CEO, I started seeing how um we would pay people we would pay speakers to um to present at conferences. And I kept thinking to myself, I could do this. <laughs> I was and I was signing the checks for, right. for our speakers. And I would right. be like, I can do this. Right, right. So the real spur to me, though, was the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And early in the pandemic, I was lobbying, you know, I was working with a lobbyist to get some to get a federal bill passed. And I remember it was like March 29th, 2020. I told him there is going to be a mental health crisis when we get out of this. And we need to be ready for when that happens. And so that bill actually did get passed after I left my organization, um, partially in the some of the results post pandemic. But I sort of knew that there would be a mental health crisis. I could see I could see it coming. And so and my thought is trying to get communicate mental health to as many populations as possible using my leveraging my connections and my passion about mental health. People know when I talk about it, that I'm passionate about it. And communicating that to different groups, in particular groups that may not be as receptive to it. I actually like talking to non-psychological groups. I prefer it. And I'm starting to enjoy talking to groups who might be a little bit resistant to mental health. I think it's, I think that's where a lot of change can happen by me talking to different groups. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, my parents are from El Salvador and mental health growing up was not a thing. Like mm -hmm. you couldn't tell your parents, well, I couldn't tell my parents that I was depressed, that I was feeling sad or down because then it was like, well, ponte a limpiar, ponte a hacer algo. You know, it was like, do something, you know, like you can't just sit around. That's why you're probably bored. And um, I think that it's important to really understand that there are stigmas around mental yeah. health and uh, it is okay to have those feelings. We're all humans and we all feel stressed, depressed, down and sad and all of that. Um, and I think that the newer generations are definitely doing a lot of work around that uh, versus like our parents who they probably didn't really believe in that. So when we talk about breaking stigmas, we know mental health stigmas especially can vary across different cultures. And being that you have three different cultures, right? That you grew up with and being American too. In your experience, what are some effective ways to break down these stigmas? particularly in the workplace where they might still be prevalent? You know, there's there's a couple of things, but the first thing I was thinking about when you were just talking is 
the um, the skits on Saturday Night Live with Pedro Pascal as a Latina mom or was it mom? I guess he's a mom. And I think the last one with was it Bad Bunny was uh-huh. the guest. Yep. And they're, they're, they're like talking in Spanish and the son comes in and he says, well, the girl, the white girlfriend says he has depression. And the Pedro Pascal says, we don't believe in depression in Spanish. No, right. no, I don't, son. <laughs> you know, just clean. Yeah. <laughs> I think he said just clean. Yeah. It's really funny. If you haven't seen it, watch it on, on mm-hmm. YouTube. I, you know, in for breaking down stereotypes and stigmas, I do think humor is an effective tool. That is... There is some honesty in that in their group, their populations that are less resistant. Uh, I think in the workplace, I would not do that strategy. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> HR violations. Right. right. Uh, but I think I think some things th- that are important to think about are how do people express stress in their bodies. And lo- using those as as op- opportunities for for change. So a lot of um, in some cultures that don't ha- that don't have that are less open to mental health services, people may experience stress in their body, right? Pain in their body, pain in their stomach, headaches, backaches. Those can be opportunities where some mind based strategies can really help. Pain is one great example where working on mindfulness and uh, deep breathing can change your focus of what you're what you're paying attention to in your body. And while it doesn't necessarily change the pain, it can decrease the impact of pain in your life and it lowers the, like the experience of your pain because you're focusing on something else. So I think there are some interesting places for that. Um, in the workplace, I think routinely talking about the importance of mental health and wellness, and then for leaders, modeling it, taking time off after a, a major project saying, I'm taking a, I'm taking a mental health day. Cause I just, I need to recover after the, the three weeks we spent on writing this RFP. You know, I think that's really valuable. Yeah. And I think it's important that sick days are, are, you can say, I need to take a mental day, not to yeah. say I have a bug, a stomach bug, or I have a yeah. virus, or, you know, that I'm actually, you know, sick where I can't come to the office because it's going to spread in my germs to, to everyone. I think it's okay. And we need to normalize saying, I just need a mental day. Like I, oh, I yeah, bed today. I can't do anything. I don't want to talk to anyone. I just want to take the day off. And I was like that. I was that type of manager that mm-hmm. whenever my team member said, Hey, look, Nada, text me in the morning and say, Nada, I just need to take a mental day. And I would say, yeah, go ahead. I wanted to be that manager that made sure yeah. that their team can come to them and say, Hey, I'm not really feeling good today to do any work. And that's okay. Because sometimes I have my days too, even as a manager, you know, sometimes I don't want to go to work. I don't want to show up today, but taking that day off, is like super helpful, very, very important. Oh yeah. I when I was when I was CEO, I incorporated, I allowed folks, employees to take uh sick days. So they, my my old job had sick days and um vacation days separated. And so I allowed people to do to take a mental health day for um as a sick day, not as necessarily as vacation, and even to plan it ahead. 
So mm-hmm. if you know, if you know, you like, let's say you have a wedding you're going to, and it's going to be three days of three hectic days, and you want to take the Monday off just to recover, like just plan that day ahead, right, and, and use it. Um, I think it's really helpful, and it your team will greatly appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think about teams that are like overworked, but the manager isn't really, I guess they, they see that they're overworked, but they're not really helping to help the situation out. You know, that is the case where that can lead to burnout when you have excessive work and you're feeling overburdened. Burnout technically is when you are a sense of exhaustion. So you're really just tired, a sense of cynicism or negativism about work where you just, you know, couldn't give a shit about work anymore and are talking like that. And then third is um, a decrease in performance that you're, you're not doing as well. When your workload is becoming too much for the staffing that you have, that is a real risk for burnout um, or in, intense pressures to produce, to, to, you know, to, to increase revenue, to bring in more people, to you know, close more deals. That kind of pressure is really challenging. I, you know, I think to the extent that leaders, executives can, and managers can try to get more resources for your team, as well as monitor that and see how people are doing. One big sign of potentially a burnout is when people are not taking their PTO. So, so that's a that's a good variable. When people feel they can't take time off because of the work demands, that's actually when you need to take some time off. Like mm-hmm. take some time off to decompress, to get away from it. Don't check your email when you're on vacation. And then um and then you'll it, that can really help you just sort of feel balanced and more refreshed. I agree. I agree. I'm an advocate to take PTO. I when I had a day job working at a company, I was the PTO queen because every month I always took whether it was a long weekend, a staycation, like I didn't go anywhere, but I was at home. Maybe I got errands done or just laying at home doing nothing. And that was okay for me. I would go on vacation or whatever it was, but people would laugh at work and and some people would like poke at it and, and joke and say, oh my God, you're always off. And you know, when are you at work? And I'm like, oh, like I've learned because before I was that worker bee, I was putting in 10, 12, 14 hours a day, trying to prove myself to senior leadership that yes, I deserve that promotion. And I'm the one you got to hire for that next opportunity. When the opportunity came, it wasn't for me. You know, I was overlooked. So then that's when I started to reflect, damn, I've been missing out time with my family. I've got kids. I, you know, my friends, my me time, like I was missing out on a lot of things for a job that I, is for a promotion that I thought I was going to get, but I didn't get. So ever since then I learned, oh, I'm working my 40 hours a week. I'm not giving you no less, no more than that. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm get you're getting what you pay me for. And, you know, I'm going to take my time off and I will do that. And I think people need to learn that it's okay. I mean, you earned that time off. Yeah. It's yours. I, I, 
you know, the 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 only exception to me would be that there are some work deadlines and make sure you work around those, right? right? So don't take a week off the week the week of the annual meeting. Right. You know, right. Or the week, the week, you know, like if you're in finance, don't take the week off the week your audit is going on, mm-hmm. you know, but the week after the audit is completed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Take a week. Yeah. You deserve yeah. it. You deserve it. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. What I love about being on my own is that because I create my own schedule, I can take vacation whenever I want. Exactly. <laughs> Welcome to the promised land. Hey, see, that's a luxury to me. Just being oh, able to oh, it is. It is. flexibility. Oh my gosh. I oh, like, oh yeah. It's, it's, it's unbeatable. Honestly, yeah. it is. Yeah. So let's talk about intersectionality in mental health. Mm-hmm. How do you navigate the intersectionality of your identity in the context of mental health discussions and are there unique challenges or advantages you found in addressing mental health issues from multiple cultural perspectives? You know, one of the, the biggest things I think about is that being multiracial, multiethnic, uh, I have some insight into different cultures. And so, you know, I have insight into the immigrant experience. I have insight into Latinx worlds, Asian worlds, uh, Middle Eastern MENA worlds. And so I, you know, one, if people ask me, I share what my background is. I don't play the psychologist game of what do you think I am? What does it matter? I just, I just say it up front, right? That's number one. Number two, I inquire about experiences that are important. For example, the immigration experience is a big deal. How how you came to the U.S., how it was for you. Did you come with your family? Did you come uh, for work, for school? I inquire about that. And that's something that a lot of uh, therapists may not automatically do. And so that I think that brings some insight and that builds rapport with my um, multiracial, multiethnic uh, clients. Mm-hmm. Now, you also work with executives and leaders, which I think it's it's a unique niche. What sparked your interest in providing psychological support specifically to this demographic? And what are some common challenges you help them overcome in the workplace? Um, so I was CEO for four years. And one of the biggest lessons I learned is that it's lonely at the top. That, you know, my, I, I have fairly rigid rules about, about friendships at work. And so when I became CEO, I did not become friends with any one of my employees because at some point I might have to make a decision about them. That doesn't mean I'm not friendly towards them or that I don't care about them. I absolutely care about them, but I'm not your friend when I'm your boss. And so it was lonely at the top. And so I was very aware of that. And luckily I had a network of peers of other CEOs whom I was able to rely on when I experienced challenges. I also had an executive coach. And so between those two, I was able to um, get a lot of support. What I realized when I decided I wanted to start a practice is that it's there, those executives need support 
both therapy and coaching. And so I actually offer both. And I don't offer them at the same time. I'm either your therapist or your coach. The the thing that I also, so some of the things that I work with executives are a lot about burnout, a lot about burnout and sort of balancing all the work that they do. Um, a lot about time management, sort of like sort of work, dealing with the pressures. And then a lot of anxiety, imposter, imposter phenomenon, feelings that they, they are inadequate, very common, even at the highest, at the high levels, it's very common. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you see cultural differences impacting workplace culture? And what strategies do you recommend for fostering a positive mental health environment across diverse settings? I think one of the things to think about are sort of cultural values and the idea of individual versus communal cultures. You know, I've worked with a number of immigrants who talk about coming from communal, community-oriented cultures, where when they network, they offer, "Can I? How can I help?" And that has gotten them burdened with more work that they didn't have to say yes to. And so I I talk, you know, you know, unfortunately in the U.S., you do have to conform to the the culture that you're in. I think. Particularly for, I'm thinking, I have a lot of patients from one organization in particular that I'm not going to name. And it's, there's a lot of networking that goes on. And so I sort of work with them about how to reframe it, how to, how to see it, and, and then how to navigate that being true to themselves, but also being able to accomplish what they need to do to succeed in the organization. So it's, 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 it is a fine, it's a tightrope. It's a balancing act. Mm-hmm. Now, given your expertise, let's talk about some self-care strategies. What are some self-care strategies you personally find effective? How do you ensure your own mental mental well-being while working in such a demanding field? So the best strategy I have for, for, for mental health and self-care, which I talk about in my presentations, is mindfulness. Mindfulness is exercise for the brain. And really, to me, it's like a CrossFit session for your brain. And the idea of being present in the moment, noticing your senses. So what do you see? What do you hear? What can you taste? What can you touch? What can you smell? Um, And then letting go of your thoughts, like sitting in the silence and sitting in that whatever feelings happen. That is fairly challenging to do just alone. So I like to do it with um, guided exercises. So YouTube clips or apps that talk to you while you're doing deep breathing. That's the that's like my my core strategy. I would also add I do a lot of deep breathing routinely. So I take deep breaths um, when I'm getting irritated. I get, take deep breaths when I'm driving. I, I, I'm constantly taking deep breaths. Uh, and then the, the other two things I think are very important are social connection. So spending time with friends and family, talking to people, texting people, staying in touch and laughter. 
humor, like joke, laughing about things, being able, you know, I, I, you're not going to have a meeting with me if we're, and not laugh, mm-hmm. you know, there is the truth. Yeah. And I love the humor. And that's something that I'm always looking. I always, I always try to find humor, especially if I'm going through a tough time, I'm sad down for whatever the reason may be. And I like to, I like to watch a lot of stand-up comedy shows. Mm-hmm. I just, it's like for that hour that I'm watching the show that I'm listening in and I'm cracking up, it's like something is just lifted off of me. So oh, yeah. I'm always at a comedy show because like they say, laughter is the best medicine. And I think it's very, very true. Um, there's the saying too, that I got to laugh to keep from crying, <laughs> you know, because. I mean, the best comedians are those who have had a lot of pain. Yeah. 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 Very, very, very real. And a lot of what they talk about, you know, we as the audience can audience can relate to that. Yeah. And so um, I think that's where we then start to just kind of let a lot of the baggage go. Where we're like just laughing and that that the best laugh is like when you're laughing from your belly where you're just oh, yeah. up and you're crying just because yeah. you're laughing so hard. Like that's my favorite type of laugh. Yeah, I I try to get that when I speak. I try to get people to laugh like that. I I have one time when I do that, which is I um I I joke about on April Fool's 2020, I sent a photo to my stepbrother and stepsister of me and my partner wearing the same shirt. And I and the and the meme says, uh, he stole my look. And <laughs> so I sent it to them and we 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 joked back and forth. And then somehow I said, we could we could pull this off for the month. This is April Fool's 2020. Remember, this is when the yeah. world had coups. Right. And, and and one of my and my stepbrother said, "Prove it." Oh, and then and then so in the PowerPoint slide, I show seven photos of my partner and I wearing the same clothes. And <laughs> and oh usually that gets usually by the third one, people start busting out. Right. Right. It, it, and then and if they don't, I tease them about it. I'm like, "Are you kidding me? None of you are laughing, dude." Right. <laughs> So, like I know this is funny. You gotta laugh. I, I, I know. I have right. done, I've done this presentation a lot right. of times. This is this is hilarious shit. Yeah, exactly. And since we're talking about self care, I for like when I have my my self care days, I like to be alone. Whether if it's me just watching TV by myself, or like I'll go sit down and eat by myself. I'll go get a massage, a facial, whatever it is. But I like to do those things by myself. What do you say uh, to someone? Like, what tips could you give to someone who maybe is like, oh, I don't like being by myself. You know, I need to have a partner or someone to tag along with. Like, what tips do you give that person? Self-care is individual, right? It's for yourself. So I think you do what works for you. Now, the, the things that you're talking about, like a massage and a day off where you don't do anything. Those are wonderful. And, and I encourage people to do those. Those are not daily things that you do. Or if you if you can afford to do a massage every day, then tell me what you do, because I want I want some tips. <laughs> right? But for, but for for you know for most podcast listeners here, we are not quite at that level yet. Um, unless we're geo-arbitraging and living in um 
you know, in, in Nicaragua where we can afford a $20 massage. Yeah, exactly. But I think about what can you do on a daily basis and incorporating that into your life. So mindfulness, you could do that if you, if you want to do it alone, try to, when, when can you find some alone time in your house? Uh, you know, maybe it's after the kids go to school. Uh, maybe it's during your lunch break. Uh, you know, when can you, you know, or when can in you shower in the shower? That's great. <laughs> oh, you know, shower with a, with a, a shower bath, a shower bomb. So you get kind of yeah. nice smell. Take your yeah. time. I, like that. I like that. Um, making rituals out of things. So when you're doing your skincare regime, right. You know, if you are putting stuff on your face, most people are just sort of putting it on and not even thinking about it, but you could do it in a mindful way where you slowly, you know, massage your, the, the moisturizer and other different lotions into your face. Uh, I do it in my morning coffee routine. So my more, I, I do a pour over coffee and there's a whole ritual I do where I grind the beans, smell the coffee, and then I pour the water to the right temperature that I like. I like 185. And I listen to it go um, pour into my Yeti cup. And then I can taste the warmth and feel the heat. That two, three minutes, that's part of my mindfulness routine in the morning. And I love it. It's part of what I do. So trying to figure out how can you do that every day? Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Now, Let's just lighten things up a little bit. If you could have dinner with a celebrity or a past family member, who would it be and why? Okay, I'm going to answer both. If, with a celebrity, I would want to, I would want to have dinner with Barack Obama. You know, uh, he is such an amazing leader and I would want to pick his brain about how he decided to become president and how he navigated some of the challenges. I would love that. For a past family member, I would say my mom. She she died when I was 28. Sorry. And so I would love to I would love to have a meal with her and catch her up. She never saw me do a presentation in Spanish. My Spanish was not as good when she was alive. Oh, I really awesome. learned I learned a lot on the job and at a hospital in Cleveland, Ohio, where I where I went from someone who looked at a, at a dictionary once every minute in a th in a Spanish session to forgetting where my dictionary was and you know talking a mile a minute in Puerto Rican Spanish, which I'm not Puerto, <laughs> Puerto Rican, that's different. Yeah. And so I I it was I wish she had seen me talk like that, and so I know she would be proud. And so I wish I would I would love that conversation. Oh oh, I love that. Well, shout out to mom. I know she's proud. Thank you. I know she's like, yes, he's speaking Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> What's your go-to method for relieving stress after a busy day? Um, I would say uh, taking some deep breaths, like sort of like at the end of the day, actually at the end of the day, I always go up to my, um, I, I climb the, the steps. So I work in the basement uh, or in the ground level of my townhouse. I climb up two steps. I go see my partner and get a hug. And then, and then really the other thing I like to do is I like to laugh. So we watch something funny every day. 
And the thing that I've gotten into recently is this channel called Dropout, where uh, it's a um, it's a gamer kind of channel, D and D and stuff. But they have this show called Game Changer, where the rules of the game change every day. So they're improv folks. Uh-huh. Every day is a different game. So today it might be a version of The Bachelor with one of the people as The Bachelor. The next day it might be uh, keep your heart rate under like from not going up. Another one is just making funny responses to like mm-hmm. ma- making sexual innu- innuendo jokes. Okay. It's really hilarious. They're, it's a, it's popular on TikTok. So they, they have, you, you might have seen some clips of um, bizarre questions and like, you know, what would you do if your dog was now the cook in the house? And like, <laughs> and, and you know, funny antics ensue. So I like to listen to stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. I got to look it up now because that sounds very interesting for it to switch up every day. Link. <laughs> yeah. If you could teleport to any place in the world right now, where would it be? If I could tell me any place in the world, I would want to go to Spain. Mm. I um, have been, I've been dreaming of going to Granada and seeing the Alhambra. Yes. And so, and so, uh, so I, I have a trip planned to Spain in April. Oh, nice. Yeah. How long will you stay? Uh, nine days. So it's a nice. decent, decent trip. So we'll I'll see Sevilla, Granada, um, one or two other places. Definitely Madrid. We'll leave. We're flying out of Madrid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nice, nice. That's fun. I always I, I love traveling. So, and Spain, you can never go wrong with Spain. Oh, I am looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. And the food too. Is yeah. is that would that be your first time? I went to Spain when I was eleven with my mom. And so I have, but I have child memories of Spain. Right, and right. So I want to experience, I've been to Europe as an adult. I, I went to Portugal in 2019, right before the pandemic. So um, I've had tastes, but I haven't seen Spain itself. Right, since, right. Since then. So I'm really excited about that trip. That will be fun. So tell us about one hobby or interest of yours that people might be surprised to learn about. So my favorite hobby is street art photography. So I take photos of murals uh, and graffiti. I have photos from, I've seen street art in four continents. And I have photos from, which four? Actually, I have photos from five continents. I have photos from five continents and I have photo, uh, people have sent me photos from Australia. So I have six continents. Um, you can see that on my Instagram, Dr. Nabil. I really love just sort of seeing art in in a public way. And then I like graffiti, the tags and the throw-ups, as well as giant fancy murals. So I plan trips around this. And so I look for places. I'm going to, I'm going on a cruise in December. We're flying out of Fort Lauderdale. I've already lined up where between Fort Lauderdale and Miami, where are the places I want to go see? One day I'm going to rent a car and we're just going to see, see all this stuff. You know? and so my, my, my photos feed is really extensive. Wow. I did. I would not have guessed that you like that. That's pretty cool. How did you get into that? It started with, okay. So 
I travel a lot for work. And so I would just walk around cities and stuff. And then I started taking some photos of stuff that I saw. And it really sparked when I was in Boston and I found a, a, an alley full of graffiti. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. So then I started looking into it. And then now I really plan vacations around knowing where things, where, where are neighborhoods that have street art? And we, we go there and we just walk around. And the one thing about it is you, Instagram is a great tool. I, people list where addresses of art is. And so I can go to a neighborhood and then park my car or Uber there and just walk around. Mm-hmm. Some of the secrets I've done go early in the day. The thugs are not awake <laughs> in the morning. Right. Right. They're out at 5 p.m. They're right. not up at 7 a.m. And so I, so I've walked, I mean, I walked in a neighborhood in Mexico City where um, my driver wouldn't get out of the car. Like, and, and then, I think we heard a gunshot Ooh. and I, I definitely remember, I definitely remember I was walk. I was with um, my partner and an older female friend. So she was about 70 and I walked past, I walked to the edge of the a wall of murals and I saw some stuff that I was like, Nope, we're not, we're not, we're not walking here. And I turned her around and I just said, just walk this way. <laughs> like, oh we're not, we don't need, to, we don't need to see that street. <laughs> oh no. But most of the time it's fine. What's really cool. I see neighborhoods people would never know about. And then I also show people who live in a city, very different parts of their city. I was in, I was in Tokyo and my friend and I went to an island in the Tokyo Bay to look for some street art that I knew about. We got frustrated finding it. She was irritated. And I was like, I know it's in that direction. I could feel it. And we started going in that direction. And we found like a 12 story mural. What? Amazing memories. Amazing. Wow. Wow. I think murals, you know, graffiti, they get a bad reputation, bad stigma around it too. Because when people say graffiti, they're thinking, oh, it's, it's literally like gang members and thugs and, you know, bad people that are just writing on the walls. But, um, it's also just creativity. Just kind of like it tattoos. Creativity. Absolutely. Like tattoos. Tattoos don't always have to mean that you're in a gang or anything like that. It could just mean creativity. You know, you like the flower and you just want to just put the ink on your skin about the flower. And, you know, but um, it, I think it's those stigmas around that. It's so. it's interesting because this is like, I would never say that I'm cool. <laughs> like I am, like I am a nerd. I, I, I am, you know. But this is like a there's a coolness factor to street art, yeah. That I've been able to share, and I've given presentations on it. And actually, every presentation I do has street art in it. So, like the photos that I put on my in my slides, mm-hmm. I try to find photos that match, and and put it in. And right. you can you can surprise how much I could find. Right, right. Oh, and I'm sure in just your own gallery, you have a ton. Mm-hmm. Nice. Oh. So what does luxury mean to you? How do you live a luxurious life? You know, luxury, I think I think luxury is about taking care of yourself and and like enjoying yourself. So for me there's a couple things. I like okay, I like bags. I like backpacks, I like bags. So 
like one of my favorite bags that I don't use very much is this purple leather bag from um, Ted Baker. And it's like buttery soft. I'm like, oh, I love this little case. It's it's beautiful. Um, I look for sales. I, I look for sales, right? <laughs> Outlet malls and sales. I look for those. Then for travel, I really think about balancing things. So I like, if I can, I like to travel business class. And so, because uh, I'm because I'm bougie, I will, I will admit it, I'm bougie AF. <laughs> I am not going to lie about it. Love but it. I look for how to get it discounted, right? For So I'm flying to um, the trip I'm going to Spain. The The flight... I got the main part of the flight, the, the cross ocean flight, business class going there. So when we sleep and then premium economy coming back using points, using points. And the secret I discovered was going to a weird city. So instead of flying to Madrid and Barcelona, I'm flying into Sevilla, Spain. So I'm flying into Sevilla and then we were leaving out of Madrid. And being creative in how I found those those tickets allowed me to book those with not a ridiculous amount of points. So those the tickets ended up costing me five hundred bucks. I had to buy a few uh, some points. But nice five hundred bucks for a business class cross cross Atlantic flight and a premium yeah. economy flight. I'll yeah. take it. Yeah, I'll take it. yeah. For two, for two tickets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, that sounds like a really good deal. Oh yeah. You know, and then I, I, look for, I look for nice hotels, but then I also bargain that with le like less uh, out being a little further away from the city, depending on where we are. You know, I think it's, it's all a balancing act. You don't have to be expensive all the time. Yep. I agree. I agree. And there are some nice hotels that aren't, you know, like the luxurious brands, uh, but they're still nice. Like, you don't have to be beachfront every time, even though it's nice, but if you can, which is better for you in terms of like your budget, if you yeah. want to go out sightseeing and doing different things, then you might want to stay a little bit further out. So definitely. One, one, of, my, one of my favorite memories of traveling this, I remember I was, I went to Arequipa, Peru, which is in the mountains. It's a colonial city, very beautiful, but it's, it's slightly off the beaten path of Americans because it's not in the sacred Valley. So it's not, near Cusco and Machu Picchu. So I, and I booked this hotel and I was so like, we got there and I was irritated myself going, oh my God, I'm spending over $200 a night for a hotel in Arequipa. What the hell was I thinking? We walk in and it's a hacienda. I'm like, oh, and then we walk into the room and it's like a one bedroom suite. And we sat down, we realized we could live in this, this hotel yeah. for like months. Right. <laughs> The kitchen would go right there. We started mapping it out. And then when I woke up in the next morning for breakfast, there was someone playing a harp. Ooh. Like, as I, there was a, someone Ooh. playing a harp while I went and, and got my passion fruit and some eggs. Like, wow. What? That's a nice way to wake up. <laughs> I want to go back. I want someone playing the harp when I get up to eat breakfast. How did I find, I don't know how I found that place. Right. But you oh know, my gosh. Oh, it was, it was, that's, and you know, but one of the secrets on that trip, that was a business trip. So I added a few days 
and we went, I had a trip, I was speaking in Ayacucho, Peru. So we flew to Lima, we did the vacation first, three days, like two days in, in, in Arequipa. And then we flew to Ayacucho. And so part of that was I wasn't paying for the big part of the trip. I was paying right. for half of the trip. And so this, the excursion I was able to do on my own, um, but biz combining business and leisure has been very helpful for me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I do the same too. Whenever it's a business, I combine the two. A little bit of fun, a little bit of business. Yep. It won't hurt anyone. Exactly. And you can, you, you can discount half, you know, it's a business oh, yeah. for half the trip. Yep. 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 Dr. Nabil, this was such a great conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being part of the show today. I am sure that our listeners have learned so much. They've gained so much. And I will drop your links in the show notes so people can reach out to you, get in contact with you, connect with you. Um, I think that this will be definitely a great episode for people uh, that have listened. Any mm -hmm. last words? Yeah, you know, uh, I am available for, for booking for speaking engagements or for coaching, executive coaching or psychotherapy. So reach out to me at Nabil at executivetherapy.solutions. It's an interesting uh, email address, executivetherapy.solutions. Uh, executivetherapy.com was for sale and I couldn't, it was too expensive. So I just went with it. Uh, but I like solutions. I like how it yeah. sounds. Yeah. Yeah, you're definitely helping people find solutions in their lives. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Thank you so much. Thank you.